Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I want to talk to you this morning about the ongoing work of revival. And we've been in a series called The Road to Renewal, and we're studying the two-part book of Ezra Nehemiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's a story all about revival. So, we've been going through this series, and I've shared a number of times that I really feel that the Lord's speaking to us for now. This has felt like one of those rhema words in season to me as we've been going through this, and I believe that he's stirring us to restore that which has been broken down in our worship, our community, and our calling. And when I say that, and I've said that every week so far, there's probably someone among us who says, well, you know, where's this coming from? Why are we talking about revival and rebuilding? What exactly is broken down? (laughs) And it doesn't take much of a profit to recognize that there's been a lot that's been damaged over the last two and a half years through the whole COVID pandemic and everything that that has given rise to. Pretty much every area has been affected, whether that's physically, emotionally, economically, politically, socially, and spiritually. And it's not only true of the world, but it's also true of the church. We've seen church leaders dropping like flies, it seems like. We've seen Christian witness damaged by scandal, by compromise. We've seen church numbers dropping. And yes, it's also been a challenge for our community. Although, I thank God that we've fared better than lots of other people have experienced. But even so, what I know from knowing our congregation is that it it still left many of us feeling weary, feeling disillusioned, feeling tired, feeling weak. I mean, let's be honest, right? (laughs) So, what we saw last week and, and if you didn't get to watch last week's uh, message or, or, or the, the previous message, I'd really encourage you to go to the, the podcast or our YouTube channel and watch those because I, I do feel like this is uh, the Lord speaking to us in an important way for right now. But what we saw last week is that even though that is our current story, I believe what God's saying is it's time to tell a new story. Amen. It's time to tell a new story. And it's a story of possibility. And It's not plucking things out of thin air, but it's speaking out of the possibility that God has spoken to us prophetically and in Scripture. And so this is not idealism. It's not emotionalism. It's not pie in the sky. It's something called faith. (laughs) Faith that God is actually true to his word. And it's hope that, as I mentioned earlier in the service, that behold, he's doing a new thing, that he makes a way in the wilderness, that he makes rivers flow in the desert. And so I believe we're in a moment where we need to be developing a new hunger for for God's presence in worship, where we need to be retelling the story of Scripture for a new generation— where we need to be rebuilding the walls of joy and love in our relationship. And that was the topic of last week's message. Because 
when you look at history, when you look at scripture, anytime the church, when God's people go through a time of, of damage or decay, what it means is it's time to seek God for revival. It's time to seek God for a new breath, a new move. And so that's, that's what you see, not only in the pattern of scripture, but you see it through the pattern of church history. It is a pattern. It's a regular way that God works in his people. And so we're asking the Lord for revival among us. For a new outpouring of God's spirit. For a new season. For a new generation in the life of this church. And so he's done it before. (laughs) Many of us have come to faith in moments like that. Others of us haven't. But if he's done it before, he will do it again. And so like Nehemiah, we're going to shift the conversation. We're going to tell a new story. We're no longer going to define our community by what we lack, what we've lost. We're going to begin to ask, what do we want to build together? What do we want to build together? And as soon as the conversation becomes about that, now you're thinking about possibilities. You're thinking about resources that God's given you, the gifts, the talents within the community that you can apply to create something that hasn't existed before. And so that's what we saw in Nehemiah last week, that it's releasing everyone into their ministry, everyone in the game, called to God's mission in the world. And so this week, what we're going to see today is the work of revival is actually never done. We sang earlier here in Mukunji the Waymaker song, and it says, you never stop working. You never stop working. The work of revival is never done. It has to continue in each generation until the Lord returns. And so the Lord's always working revival in us, sometimes quickly and spectacularly, but most of the time, slowly and unimpressively. And so the title today is The Ongoing Work of Revival. And we're going to turn to our passage today. If you have your Bible, if not, you'll have it up on the screen. We're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8. And as we do that, I want to bring you up to speed on the story. So there's five sections to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've looked at the first three, which are Israel's three waves of return from exile back to Jerusalem. And so we've seen these three waves of revival with this repeated pattern, this cycle running through each of them. And it's this pattern of commission, opposition, and completion. And so we saw the renewal of worship by Zerubbabel restoring the temple. We saw the renewal of community by Ezra restoring scripture. And then we saw the renewal of the people's calling with Nehemiah's rebuilding of the city walls. And so today we're coming to the fourth section of the book. And this is really what is the climax of the book. And it's chapters, this section is chapters 8 to 12. And after everything's been restored— temple, scripture, community, we find Ezra and Nehemiah now standing side by side with a united, with a committed people. And it's a pretty amazing scene. You really don't find this kind of amount of joy in the Bible very often. It's a special moment in the story. And so what we can finally begin to see in this fourth section is that each of these cycles of restoration has really been leading towards an overarching restoration, which is restoring the covenant. It's all about restoring the covenant. 
And so Ezra and Nehemiah are asking, they're here and they're asking, can it be? Can this be the moment where the prophecies of Isaiah, of Jeremiah especially, will be fulfilled? Is this the day when God is going to make a new covenant with his people? And so with that in mind, we're going to read from Nehemiah, starting from the very last verse of chapter 7. And I'll interject a couple comments as we go along. It says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, just to note, in Jerusalem, this is one of the busiest intersections of the city. And so what that meant was that thousands, maybe up to 50,000 people could have participated in this moment. And it says, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So they're talking about the Torah. The word there is actually Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. And remember, for these people who were gathering here, most of them probably have never heard the reading of the law. We, we kind of think, oh, well, this was back in the days when it was all fresh. Well, no, the books of Moses were already a thousand years old by the time this is happening. So these are just as distant to them as, as to us. We also have to remember people didn't have their own scrolls. They weren't able to open up the scriptures and just read them for themselves. And so they're hungry to hear the word of God. Verse 2, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And that's, that's the Jewish New Year. That is the New Year's Day of the Jewish calendar. And it says, He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the women, the men, and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, what's interesting is that this is the, believe it or not, this is the first description of what you could call expository preaching in the Bible. This is the first time. And I'd like to point out, he gives a six-hour sermon. (laughs) On a holiday, with kids present. And it says, Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform, the first pulpit that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shemam, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael on his left hand, Alkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalim on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. Remember, this is a scroll. He opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. This is the same expression that Jesus says when he says, truly, truly. Amen. Amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. I wish they would have just put the Levites. <laughs> Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So here we have the first group Bible studies, first small group Bible studies. This is the moment, by the way, in the history of Israel where where the Jews become the people of the book from this point onwards. So they read from the book the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. Notice that how much 
repetition there is of the word understood through this and all the people. So verse nine, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God, do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words from the law. Then he said to them, go your way, holy fat, and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Most famous quote from this book. And what's interesting about that word strength is that particular word is used dozens of times in the Old Testament and it's always translated refuge or strong fortress. The only place where it's not translated that way is here, strength. All right, so we'll, we'll come back to that because there's, there's something important in that. And it says, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I love this scene so much. And I'll, I'll summarize the rest of the story in, in, in the following three chapters. What we see is that the people go on to immediately obey. They find out that there's, oh, there's a festival that we haven't been celebrating properly. And they immediately go and celebrate the festival of tabernacles. And they commit themselves to what they hear. They actually sign a new covenant document and, and then at the end of chapter 12, they throw the worship party of all worship parties. And it's this amazing moment of joy and celebration. And so, it, it, you know, as I said earlier, this seems like in the story of this book, it seems like the moment that everything's been leading towards that, that we've all been waiting for. All the restorations that have proceeded have been leading to this larger overarching restoration. And the hope was that this would be the moment of fulfillment of God's promise of a new covenant, an everlasting covenant where he would write the law on the hearts of his people. And I think what this illustrates for us is that there's a wider point about revival that we can't afford to lose. And it's this, the purpose of revival is to renew covenant faithfulness. The purpose of revival is to renew covenant faithfulness. And, and the reason we have to say that is because there's a danger in seeking revival and talking about revival that it becomes an end in itself. Some people have what ends up being an unhealthy obsession with revival itself. And what you see happening is that when revival becomes nothing more than revivalism— it morphs into something that is greatly reduced. And instead of being God-oriented and a hunger for God, it becomes this this little God-shaped idol. And it becomes actually a form of escapism. It becomes a form of emotional kind of thrill-seeking. Sometimes you may hear, hear it as conference Christianity. And I think... This is a little bit what Jesus is talking about when he says it's a rebellious generation that constantly asks for a sign. And really, I think it's just the human heart at work. The human heart is an idol factory. And you can have all the worship services, all the scripture learning, all the community service that you want. But if the result is not a greater faithfulness and love for God among a community, then what ha- 
a revival hasn't actually occurred. So we want a revival. As we're talking about revival, I don't want you to, I don't want you to make that mistake. We're talking about a revival that is not escapism. It's returning to the heart of God. And so what that has to mean is that this is not seeking revival in order to bypass the process of character formation. It's not looking for revival as a way to take a shortcut past God working holiness and sanctification in your life. Because, you know, I've seen this. You can hop from one event to the next, one conference to the next, seeking this move of God. Where's it going to be next? You know, and that can have a good expression, but it can also have an unhealthy expression when you use it actually to distract from the elements of your character that need to grow. And you think that turning up at something, it's all just going to, presto, I'm holy now. <laughs> and so you are holy, but, but in, terms of, in terms of that being worked out into the fullness of your character. And so here's the thing. God is far more interested in who you're becoming than in what you do for him. He's far more interested in making you into a certain kind of person than he is in getting you to do certain things. I slipped a C.S. Lewis quote in there. All right. So the lust, the desire that we're made to have is for God. It's not, it's not for revival in itself. But the thing is, when revival's in its place, when it's serving the function of the pattern that God uses in his people, God uses it to renew our desire for him. And the effect is that our character is shaped. Our character is formed. And so where that happens, where the character development really happens, is once all the extraordinary stuff has kind of faded down and now real life back in picture where the extraordinary has faded down and now you're back into the ordinary rhythms of life. And so this is really where we find the people in the story. So the, the revival, three revivals, in fact, have taken place. They have a hunger for God. They have a hunger for his word to obey. They're, they're really zealous and earnest. But what you also see is that a lot of the extraordinary circumstances from the previous chapters have faded away. All right, the great events have finished the building projects are complete. And now what? Has revival finished? Well, I think the authors are saying, no, not at all. Revival has not finished. But what we see is that the work of revival has passed from the extraordinary to the ordinary. What was left, the living it out, this wasn't unimportant. This wasn't, this wasn't less important than the great events. In fact, all those great events were leading to this to the actual living out of, of what God was doing. And so now the task was to live out their faithfulness in covenant to God. So the extraordinary gives way to the ordinary. And, and this is the point. I think we're talking about two paths of revival. Whether fast or slow, God is always reviving his people. Whether he takes the fast route and there's exponential uh, miraculous, supernatural events, or he takes the slow route, God is always at work in his people bringing new life, working out the implications of the resurrection into our lives. And one day he won't only revive us, he'll resurrect us. And we'll never need reviving again. (laughs) 
And so sometimes God does the extraordinary. He changes things in an instant. And we desire that. We pray for that. We believe that as a body. We expect it. But we also all know, I don't care how charismatic you are, you know that most of your Christian life is lived out in the ordinary stuff of the day-to-day. It, it happens not, you know, in these mountaintop events and, and conferences and things, but it, it happens when you're, when you're back at work on Monday morning. Now you've got to live out your covenant faithfulness. Now you're not with all the wonderful worshipers of God. You're, you're around everyday people, many of whom have no awareness of the Spirit. That's where the character formation happens. And character building is slow work, right? The Bible often talks of walking with God as in pictures of farming, of agriculture. It says you sow the seed, you labor, you toil, you you water it, and eventually you reap a harvest. And so sometimes God works in an instant, but a lot of the time in our lives, he works in processes, And so here's the thing, whether he does it in an instant or he does it over a process, he's still working new life in you. He's still reviving his people. Whether revival comes as a river in the desert or it comes after years of hard work and labor in tough soil, God is still bringing life where there was no life. And so, you know, we said in the first message of this series that we, we can't make these great moments of revival happen. What we can do is get out of the way and continue to prepare the soil. Continue constantly to prepare the soil. And we prepare the ground with the very kind of stuff that we see in this passage. Gathering together. Preaching. Listening to the word. Studying. Feasting together. Celebrating, obeying, growing in emotional maturity, generosity, hospitality, evangelism. These are just some of the ordinary means that God uses day in and day out to continually do his work of revival. And so I believe we're on the road to revival as we dedicate ourselves to the ordinary practices that are always working that soil, that are continually bringing new life even as it doesn't mean we don't seek God for the grand supernatural moments. No, we carry on as we're doing all of the ordinary faithfulness of the covenant. We continue seeking and expecting and asking God to move in extraordinary ways. So what happens to the people of Israel in the story here is that the revivals that they'd experienced, it gives them, you see that they have this this new zeal to seek God, to obey him. They have this desire for the word. They're on fire, right? And a lot of times in revival, that's what you see. You see this great outpouring of zeal, of enthusiasm towards God. And a lot of people come to faith and they're on fire. They're new believers. They're full of zeal. And that's a good and proper way to to experience your first love. That's what happens when you fall in love, right? You're full of zeal for your beloved But it's interesting what happens here when the people actually, you know, they're in that place and then they actually come to read and listen to what's in the law. And what happens? They start to weep. You say, what is going on here? Why are they weeping? 
Well, I think a lot of times when you go from the extraordinary times to the ordinary, this is what happens. You very quickly find out that it's actually really hard to live this out. (laughs) When you go from the extraordinary to the everyday, and now you actually have to live it out, you quickly find out it's not as easy as you'd hoped. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, once you come to faith, what happens is you, you have to make some serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues. A week is not enough. Things often go swimmingly for the first week. Try six weeks. By that time, having, as far as one can see, fallen back completely or even fallen lower than the point from which one began, one will have discovered some truths about oneself. No one knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. But wait, it gets worse. (laughs) Because what, what he goes on to point out is that once you get to that place, you begin to realize something else. You begin to realize that, okay, even if you did perfectly obey God and you did everything and you offered every aspect and minute of your life to him, you actually wouldn't be giving him anything that doesn't already belong to him. So where does that leave you? Why should we not weep? <laughs> where else can that leave you but despair? How can you have any hope if you, if you can't, if you try and you know that you can't live it out and you know that even if you did live it out, it wouldn't be worth very much? Well, here's the point. New life comes when we turn both from our sin and from our righteousness. We turn both from our sin and from our own righteousness. Because every, everyone here, everyone in church, everyone generally, I think, knows that coming to God means turning away from sin. But, but when you're on that slow path of revival, of character building, what you find out is that you also have to turn away from your own efforts at being good. You begin to find out you can trust in your own efforts of goodness, your own righteousness, and that's also going to cause you to miss God. And right in this moment, what I, what I love in this story, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that, that Jesus says every part of Scripture is about him, ultimately. He showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus all, in all of the Scripture the things concerning himself, from the Moses and the prophets. And here we see a gospel moment breaking through and pointing to this future of the coming Messiah. So where do we see this? Well, right in the moment of their grief and weeping because they know that they can't match up to the law, they can't live it out, Ezra and Nehemiah offer them an alternative. They tell the people not to weep, and the reason is, they say, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I mentioned when we were doing the reading that that translation is most often, that same word is always, except for this one instance, translated as protection or refuge or stronghold. And so when you, when you read this verse and you come away with the, Lord, the joy of the Lord is your strength, it can be a little bit misleading. You can read it, and I think I've probably assumed this for most of my Christian life, that what that verse is saying is, when you're grieving, if you could just make yourself happy, then you can get through it. You know, when you're grieving, just 
cheer up in the Lord and you'll have what you need to get through. You'll have the strength to make it through. Now, it, it may partially be saying some of that, but I don't think actually, actually that's what it's meant to say in, the, in context here. Because if I were to say, rather than the joy of the Lord is your strength, if I were to tell you the joy of the Lord is your refuge, doesn't that change the, the feeling a little bit? Rather than something, rather than the joy of the Lord being something located in you, now the joy of the Lord is something located in him that I take refuge in. I find safety in. And so if you're in that place of despair before God, that place of depression or whatever it is, you know there's not a lot of safety in just telling yourself, well, cheer up. It doesn't really work like that. I need something other than myself to take refuge in, to get out of that place. And so it's not about my sense of joy in God. It's about his sense of joy in me. It's not about your sense of joy in God. It's about God's sense of joy in you. And so this becomes a moment where we see good news breaking through. Because what this is saying is that if, if you want safety from the accusations of the law— If you want to escape from the judgment of the law, then you're not going to find it in your own moral performance. You're certainly not going to find it in your sin, but you're also not going to find it in your own self-righteousness. You're not going to find it in your regular attendance at temple. You're not going to find it in knowing the scriptures inside and out. You're not going to find it in your tireless community service. The only place where you can have a safe refuge, a stronghold that nothing can impregnate from the accusations of the law is if you find your refuge in him, if you find your safety in God. And this is echoing Zephaniah 3.17 that is is famous for cross stitches on people's walls. It says, the Lord rejoices over his people. The Lord rejoices over his people. Despite his people's failure, their refuge is in the Lord's joy. Not their joy, the Lord's joy over them. And so the last point here is that the Lord's joy over us is our only source of security. And this is the truth I want to encourage you with. If you're in Christ, you don't have to guess. You don't have to just hope. You can know and be secure in your salvation. You can know it. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to live in dread. You don't have to be continually seeking a new feeling or experience to confirm to you, yep, I'm still saved. You can be safe in the Lord's joy in you. The Lord's joy over you. Because Hebrews 12.2 says this, Jesus is the founder. He's both the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus as he made his way towards the cross? It was his bride. It was his people. The joy that Jesus had in his vision as he went to the cross was the people that he was rejoicing over. The people that he was going to win for himself. And so the only reason that you're safe from the accusation of the law, it's not because you performed well enough, it's because of him. And when you place your security in him, what it means is that you can be absolutely safe. 
You can be absolutely safe. Why? Because your security is not based on anything located in you. If it were, you would always have reason to doubt. If were, I was intrigued, you know, we were talking with a Jehovah's Witness at one point, and, you know, I, I was intrigued. I think I've told this before. I was intrigued, you know, what do you guys believe? And she said, well, we believe that, that God gave us his law and we have to obey the law and Jesus is our perfect example of obedience to the law. And if we obey as he did, then God will allow us into paradise. And I said, well, I appreciate what you're saying. The problem is I know myself and I know that if I stand before the creator of the universe and I have to look him in the eye and the, the thing that's going to determine whether I'm allowed into paradise is my obedience— I've, I've got no chance in the world. And I do, my, I do my best. But I know if that's located in me, that is not a sure footing. You will never be secure. But when your hope is in Jesus, the one who rejoices over you, you can have an absolute rock-solid conviction, a knowledge even, that you're safe because it's located in him. And so, you know, this is why I'm, I'm a little bit wary of always ending messages with practical application, all right? And a lot of times people say, you know, Ian, we, we need to be practical. We need to give people things to do. And, and I get that, all right? I get that. But, but here's the thing. <laughs> the problem with, or the danger of always ending messages with practical tips and advice is that if you're not careful, you begin to think that the gospel— is good advice for how you should live your life. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is good news, not about anything you've done, but about what he has done. And so it's not a message about what you must do and how you must change things and how you must obey. It's a good news. It's, it's not even— the gospel's not really telling you to do anything. It's announcing this reality that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for you, and you are now free. It's, it's new. And so all you can do with news is accept it, trust it. And so <laughs> it's good news to dead sinners that we have a living Savior. First Peter calls it a living hope. And so— Rather than give you, I want to give you advice. I want to, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to do all that. But the, the reality is, I've got nothing to offer you but Jesus. <laughs> I've got nothing to offer you of real value than Jesus. And so I want to, my, my hope, my desire is that we, that I would preach Jesus in such a way that every other idol begins to pale in comparison. That every other refuge that you might, might seek would begin to look more and more ridiculous, more and more weak and pitiful in the light of who Jesus is and how secure your foundation is in him. And so that the outcome, that when we, when we hear the gospel, when we listen to the gospel, just like these people in this, in this passage, that we would be like the man that Jesus said that he found a treasure buried in a field. And when he found that treasure. He went and sold everything he had. And, and Jesus says, out of the joy that he had, he sold everything so that he could buy that field and have the treasure. And so out of the joy, he went and sold everything he had. 
And so it, I didn't include this point, but the last point should be that our joy in God is actually our ultimate purpose. God made us, the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we actually glorify him by enjoying him forever. And so the joy of the Lord over us gives us a security that nothing else can touch. And our joy in the Lord gives us a fulfillment that nothing else can compare to. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so I want to offer an invitation to anyone here, anyone who's watching online or in Bethlehem, that if you have never come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you to, I need you to be my, my refuge. I want to throw myself on you because everything else I can't trust. I can't trust myself. I can't trust any other thing. You're the only one who can make me safe. I want to tell you that that's true and he's inviting you and you can come to him right now and all that it takes is to trust him. And so you can do that simply by talking to him in prayer and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for how I've lived my life or how I've displeased you and sinned against you. Jesus, thank you that you died for me because you loved me. Thank you that I'm forgiven, that you rose again from the dead. I believe. Please give me your spirit right now and I commit myself for the rest of my life to follow you. And as you do that, Jesus rejoices over you and his people rejoice over you and everything will change. Let's stand and pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gift that is your word that tells us your heart towards us. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege, just like the people in this story, they had no easy access to scripture. Lord, we have ample access to scripture to read and learn and study. Lord, teach us to be faithful in the everyday, to submit ourselves to that ongoing work of bringing new life, that ongoing work of revival that you do in us. Lord, and we also ask you in the midst of that, as we prepare the ground, as we return our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, that you would come and pour out your spirit and revive us once again in an extraordinary way, in a supernatural way, that we would see exponential results far beyond what we could manage with just our efforts. So we thank you, Lord. We place our hearts on you this morning and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.